Hello and welcome to the Eastern Front. My name is Julia Zorja. I'm a senior fellow with the Middle East Institute, and I am joined today by my colleagues. Dalbur Rohaj from AEI. And I'm Giselle Donnelly, also from AEI. On our podcast, we talk about the many challenges to European peace that tend to erupt along a line running from the Baltic to the Black Sea, the Eastern Front, and about why those matter to the United States. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today, we're joined by our friend, Chris Miller, who is a Gene Kirkpatrick Visiting Fellow at AEI and a Russia expert. Welcome, Chris. Um, but before we turn to Chris, who will be talking to us about sanctions and how we can make sense of their efficiency or the lack thereof, let me turn to Giselle first. Uh, thank you, Yulia. Uh, Chris, this is a question for you, uh, to be sure. Uh, just watching President Biden at the State of the Union last night uh, give himself a giant pat on the back for... Uh, the extent uh, of the sanctions uh, that have been imposed, and I don't mean to diminish those. This is um, these are serious efforts. There was no sense, uh, and this seems to be the case, or maybe it seems to be the case uh, in Europe as well, that uh, sanctions in the past have always proved actually a step toward war, not something that that ends. Uh, a conflict. Um, and certainly in the president's speech, he did not give drop any hints to that effect. Um, so I, I'm wondering as we consider how uh, efficacious these sanctions are, whether we should also be nervous about that in that this is not likely to be uh, the end of the story. Yeah, I think that's right, probably in two different ways. One is that it's clear that sanctions on their own are not going to induce the Russians to surrender in any sense, reduce their aims, um, withdraw from Ukraine in short order. Maybe over the long run, they'll have that effect, but uh, not not measured in days or weeks, certainly. Um, but then there's another sense in which they're not the end of the story, which is that in uh, Russia, they're seen not as an economic measure, but as a political measure and as a uh, to a certain extent, a type of economic warfare. And the fact that the, the French foreign minister yesterday described France as being in an economic war with Russia before rolling back his comments, I think was noticed in Moscow and is in some ways an accurate statement of, of where things stand. If if you look at uh, the measures the, the EU, the US and Japan took vis-a-vis uh, -vis Russian central bank reserves earlier this week, uh, seizing essentially over $300 billion of Russian reserves, um, you know, this is the, the greatest bank heist in history in some ways. And as you can understand why why Russia would see it as as an act of war. And indeed, it's part of this broader power struggle between the, the West and Russia to to hit and hit back and try to reduce the other's leverage over Ukraine. Um, if I may just go back to the State of the Union, uh, where, where I found there was a there was an odd tension between the framing that the president used, almost as if this were a problem that had been fixed by this concerted action of, of Americans and, and our allies. Um, and, and that effect you highlight in one of your recent pieces where you say that the fact that we've seen these massive sanctions and, and really these are unprecedented measures and they need to be applauded and uh, 
was myself sort of surprised to, 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 to see them rolled out with such vigor. They are not a sign of success. I mean, they are a sign of failure of previous policies. I mean, Putin should have been deterred by the prospect of something like this happening. And, and that clearly ha- uh, hasn't, uh, hadn't happened. And, uh, and, and, and the other thing that was sort of missing from, 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 from the speech yesterday, I thought was, 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 was the notion of, you know, what, what our strategy going forward is, right? Like if, if, if this indeed does not lead to a de-escalation on the Russian side, you know, what are the arrows in the quiver going forward? Uh, what does, you know, what, what, what do the sort of next economic steps look like or, or what are the other measures that we have available that might go hand in hand with preparing Americans to, you know, bear sacrifices and, 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 and real costs? I don't think we've, we've, we heard any of that in that speech yeah. yesterday. We did hear how Joe Biden was assuring the American public that he will do everything so we do not have any costs or as, as least cost as possible on, uh, um, on, on us um, vis-a-vis what is happening with Russia. And just one thing here, more as a rhetorical point, he said yesterday, um, Kiev might be encircled but the Ukrainian spirit or something like that will not die. This is the moment when I walked away. So, Chris, over to you. <laughs> it's always happy here on the Eastern Front, Chris. <laughs> I, I think that's right. I, I think Western policy this far has not succeeded at achieving its goals. The, the goal was to deter a Russian attack, and that failed. Now, was it a, a hard goal to achieve? Perhaps. Um, but there's no doubt that we failed in that effort. And I think the fact that we're now rolling out sanctions that are surprising us and are also surprising the Russians displays a fundamental illogic. If, if we, <laughs> we ought to have known we were willing to do this and then threaten them credibly beforehand, and maybe deterrence would have worked more effectively. But the fact that the Russians are surprised by our responses means that we did deterrence very badly. They, they shouldn't have been surprised if we deterred them well. Um, so I, I think that is an, an error. And I understand why in particular, uh, the European Union uh, took a while to get to where it is, and, and the shift in German policies, in particular, over the past couple of days, was mm-hmm. was big. Um, but yes, this collectively is a, a failure of sanctions policy. And so then the question is, what comes next? And mm-hmm. I, I'm sure we'll talk about the Tell military <laughs> side as well. But I, mean, I, I think that despite Biden's uh, promise that this is going to be cost free for Americans or as cost free as possible, I think the reality is we're already seeing in Europe and in the U.S that populations are not willing to tolerate the Russians launching rockets into apartment buildings in Kiev uh, and still fund the Russian military by buying their oil. I, I think that that is shifting. And just as we were all surprised uh, to see Schultz's speech in the Bundestag on Sunday compared to where Germany was a week before, I think in a couple of weeks time after we have the Russians launch a series of more rockets and, and surround Kiev and, and properly besiege the city as it looks like they're likely to do, but public opinion is going to shift now uh, as well. And I think energy sanctions, which are uh, difficult to conceive today, will be very conceivable after the number of civilian casualties in Kiev. It's not 2,000, but multiple times that number, which is, I'm afraid, where we're going to be. What are those What are those economic sanctions that are unconceivable today or were unconceivable yesterday, but would um, would possibly be on the table in the next few days? Well, there's no, um, there's no reason why we couldn't do Iran-style sanctions. So beginning to cut off Russia's ability to export oil and gas and also coal, which is a big Russian export. Um, it's, it would be 
uh, it would increase gas prices, no doubt. Uh, driving would become more expensive. It would be bad for Biden's midterm chances, um, but it would be devastating for the Russian economy. Now, I think there's no reason to think that economic measures alone are going to change Putin's calculus this week or next week. But without the ability to export oil and gas, that really does begin to bring the costs uh, directly to bear on the Russian government um, in particular. So I, I think we're headed in that direction. So could I could I just ask you about the the sort of mechanics of of a wholesale oil, gas, coal embargo? Uh, because it you know strikes me at this stage as as somewhat unrealistic that these sanctions would be uh, applied by the entire world and that they would be applied by China. And so if China then steps up as a buyer of, 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 of Russian energy sources, like, yeah, these things are fungible, right? So, 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 so Chinese will stop buying coal and, 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 and gas, natural gas and, and oil from elsewhere. They'll free up that supply for us and they'll just sort of, you know, the sort of Russian sources will be redirected to, to China. How, how, how important that effect is? What are the sort of frictions for, you know, in the Russian economy reorienting itself yeah. that way? That effect is present, but the experience with Iran was that uh, as long as you make the sanctions secondary and threaten to sanction China if it doesn't comply, China will begin to comply. They'll cheat, they'll delay, they'll drag their feet. Uh, but the the broad takeaway with Iran was that the U.S. has a lot of authority to coerce uh, China to, to reduce its oil purchases, which is why Iranian oil exports plummeted after U.S. sanctions were imposed. Yeah, I, I would also think, too, that uh, the Russian distribution system is heavily oriented toward Europe and the ability of just mm. to be able to get the gas or and coal uh, either by ship or whatever, you know, the pipeline network can't possibly be as uh, um, voluminous or as robust as it is to Europe. So um, even if China buys, continues to buy Russia gas, and as Chris said, if there are secondary sanctions, um, you know, those, you know that, that seems to me to be uh, the most effective set of sanctions that, that could be implemented and the ones that would really go to the source of, uh, as Chris said, Russian government funding. You know, it's one thing to, to seize people's yachts and cut off caviar, but uh, um, that's, that's and, much more serious business. And within that frame, what is it possible, Chris, to the extent that you know, to cut off um, supply to Europe? Um, I was talking yesterday to a former German MP who was saying that it's super dangerous to even talk about Nord Stream 1. Um, and so, uh, and and we've seen German voices, including from the foreign minister, uh, Baerbock saying, um, if uh, this was a while ago, maybe she's changing her position. But if uh, Germany would stop importing uh, importing coal from Russia, it would be in the dark. So, what's your assessment on that? Well, I think Europe does find itself in a tricky position, especially vis-a-vis gas. But if you look at Russian exports, oil is by far the most important, more than five times as important as either gas or coal, depending on the, the price any given year. So you could even ignore gas and ignore coal and just focus on oil. And that would mm -hmm. be a huge hit to Russia. 
Um, so I think the the focus on gas is is not wrong. We should think about how to, in the long run or the medium term, reduce Europe's dependence. But actually, if you want to hit the Russians really hard, the way to do it is oil. And look, this there's a, a longer term and larger scale benefit for this. I mean, to the degree that we are headed towards two different blocks, uh, geopolitically speaking, uh, you know, in markets as well, orienting, you know, sort of creating uh, energy blocks um, follows that 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 similar logic. I mean, you know, our AEI, uh, you know, the economists at AEI will uh, invade the third floor, I, I'm sure. But, um, you know, it's pretty clear that sort of these mercantile measures are now part of, you know, intended to be part of American strategy. Um, and to the degree that this accelerates that, forces it, makes it clearer, makes it a part, an overt part of policy rather than kind of a covert or unintended part of policy. I mean, again, that, that strikes me as unpleasant in the short term, but hugely beneficial um, in the medium and longer term. Yeah, I think that's right. The, the real takeaway is, is actually for European relations with China, um, because a lot of the Europeans, I think until about 10 days ago, wanted to pretend that it was impossible to conceive of a situation where we'd be politicizing trade relations with China. And now hmm. this happens so quickly with Russia that I think it's difficult to deny now that in the case of a Taiwan emergency, for example, Europe would be doing the exact same thing. And so they better start contingency planning. Can we uh, can we also talk about, so I think your China point is very interesting. Shout out to the European MFAs here. Move. <laughs> um, but, um, but beyond China, um, what I've also seen over the last week, apropos what Giselle was talking about, these the formation and consolidation of two blocks, we've seen abstentions in the Security Council from allies such as UAE and, um, and India. Uh, they play a big role in all of this, um, in all of this uh, situation. So is there leverage and what can be done from the US side and European side um, to uh, to force more peop more countries into our block. Well, I guess looking at the UN vote, uh, it, it reemphasized to me how little I care about the United Nations. Um, <laughs> <laughs> We're at AI. <laughs> yeah, really. Uh, you know, uh, you know, it's I, I think it's a fine organization to be used when it suits our purposes, but. I, the idea that it's sort of a moral voice for the world. I, I just don't see the evidence for that. Um, so I, I think with the, the Indians, you know, they've they voiced their uh, concerns in the nations about not wanting to be too tough on the Russians, fine. Um, they're not going to violate sanctions if we make sanctions secondary. Um, they provide basically no capital, basically no technology to Russia as it is. So they're they're not really seriously violating the sanctions in any way. Well, but they, they you know, A... There's the residue of uh, non-alignment that, uh, you know, whenever uh, they get caught in the headlights, uh, seems to dart, you know, from one side of the picture to the other, if I haven't ruined that metaphor too much. But even in recent years, they've still wanted to hedge. They, they entertain still buying Russian aircraft and Russian weaponry and stuff like that. The the Indian ability to sort of 
dance, you know, to take advantages of things like the quad, um, you know, can they continue to, to just uh, cherry pick the good parts of um, a democratic alliance? Uh, I mean, it feels like they, it was a miscalculation on, on well, their part. It's a mis- the kind of miscalculation that they make all the hunk of time. I mean, it's just damaged so many of, of their relationships. Uh, and I don't know what the, what the benefit is for them. Well, you know, the, there's, I'm sure, a domestic Indian political benefit or, you know, again, and it's just like this sort of habitual uh, response. But, you know, again, for countries like that, the ability to, to dance between the elephants uh, is, is evaporating. Maybe also looking at Arab countries is worth it. Right. Uh, my yeah. uh, president at MEI was um, publishing yesterday an appeal that this is the moment um, in which Arab countries really need to take sides. We've seen a total lack of, of positioning almost um, over there. And they are important players, uh, especially in the energy sector. So what about this hedging? Yeah, I think that the Arab story is quite interesting. And if you envision a future where we go down the route of oil sanctions on Russia, then the Saudi response in particular is very, very important because you'd want them to produce a lot more and ship a lot more oil to make up for what you'd lose from Russia. And in the past, I think the US had a lot more ability to twist the Saudi arm and and force production Mm -hmm. higher when need be. And now that has dissipated. And with, you know, the Iranian nuclear talks that I guess are, um, I don't know if they're close to a new deal or not. I guess we'll we'll see, but it seems like the Saudis have have more skepticism than ever about uh, the U.S. when it comes to providing for Saudi security, and so that is that is a big dilemma. And obviously, the Russians have been spending a lot of time working on the relationship with the Saudis and the Emiratis and other players in the Middle East over the past couple of years, and we're seeing the benefits to Russia of that right now that we can't count on the Saudis to ramp up production when we most need it. Well, it. it- has definitely cast a pall over the Qatari World Cup, uh, which couldn't happen to a nicer group, if you ask me. But uh, even if you're just counting FIFA. So, could I, Chris, could I ask you um, a, a sort of speculative question uh, about the sort of long-term signal that that, that this big package of sanctions sent uh, through the rest of the world going forward? So, so, so China was mentioned earlier in the conversation. Um, and, and obviously, with, with Ukraine, we haven't established deterrence that was effective at preventing Putin from invading. But do you think the knowledge that, you know, if, 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 if it decides to, the West can actually get its act together and, and apply very stringent punitive measures might be enough at dissuading Beijing from, from trying something similar over the course of, of coming years? Yeah, I, I think the past week has not been a good week for any evil dictators planning to invade their neighbors. I um, like that line. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> both in terms of the, the Western response, but also in terms of remembering how hard wars can be. Um, and, and no one knows how a potential invasion of Taiwan would play out or any sort of military scenario on Taiwan would play out. But we've remembered uh, this past week just how, how complex and unexpected uh, military operations can play out. So uh, if I were Xi Jinping, I would be rapidly recalculating 
uh, my my chance of success if I try I mean, to do that. In the sort of economic realm, uh, obviously the interlinkages with China, I guess, run much deeper, and 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 and, and than, than those with with, with Russia, and uh, it would be, I think, a much bigger push to, to to sort of put in place a similar sort of decoupling and you know bankrupting of its banking system and so on and so forth. Than, than what we've seen over the past right. week, but but I mean it's, it's, it's still it, I mean it, it it has been a show of resolve, and I think you know it's a nice way to finally be able to say something, at least remotely uh, optimistic on this podcast. You know, um, conversely, I mean I'm, I've been reading a lot about the um, decision to go to war after the attack on Pearl Harbor, and more broadly about the relationship amongst the Axis powers um, at, at that period. And the, you know, the appeal of a line that goes something like this, you know, we're, things look bad now, but we could be looking at a worse future. Um, if China sees that, that there's this, which I think they must see, uh, an effort to create a global economic exclusionary block or mercantile, you know, fight their mercantilism with our mercantilism. Um, and they run the numbers on that. And it looks, you know, do they stand down from that? Or do they think this is something that's coming? It's inevitable. We need to pick the low hanging fruit now and hunker down, um, you know, and, and try to build our power within the scope of our own borders and uh, the other sort of, you know, the, for want of a better term, access powers. We, we could, you know, there may not be many pipelines from Russia now, but we could make those, uh, you know, pretty darn quick. Yeah. So, uh, you know, how this stuff plays out is is not likely to be linear, I guess. Yeah, and we, we should assume that the Chinese will be, in addition to recalculating their chances of Taiwan success, also preparing much more than they otherwise would have for this type of measure vis-a-vis uh, -vis them. And I think the self-reliance drive that we've seen from China over the past couple of decades, which is built into the Communist Party's worldview, uh, this will intensify all of those impulses. Um, now, I think that's actually a good thing from our perspective, because the more self-reliant they are, the less efficient they are, the slower their economy grows. I think we yeah. should... Let, you know, welcome that if they want to take that path. It makes our lives even easier. Um, but yes, it certainly does insulate them if they, to the extent that they succeed in making themselves uh, self-reliant, it insulates them from this type of pressure in the future. So with us, with this uh, non-linearity that we're confronted with, I have to ask the difficult question. With what is happening in Ukraine, as we're, we keep talking about sanctions, um, you pointed to secondary sanctions as key in, in the case of Iran. Do you think there is a red line um, that we are approaching? And what would that be uh, when we will seriously we be talking about secondary sanctions? My sense is that the the sort of reaction function of Western politicians is the more public pressure gets put on them to do something yeah. about civilian casualties, the more likely they are to act. Right now, I think the typical, at least the typical U.S. politician is thinking, I have a midterm election to win. 
higher gas prices will make that harder. But if there's more public pressure on them to say, do something about the Russians outside of Kiev, they'll, they'll begin to start to act. And I don't think we're that far away. I think you know, the Russians uh, over the past two days have substantially escalated the violence they've used against both Kharkiv and Kiev. Um, we've seen some horrifying images from both cities. And if that continues to escalate, I think a matter of weeks would be all it takes, maybe even a couple of weeks to, to get a big shift in public opinion and a big shift, therefore, in Western policies with regards to energy. Yeah, maybe that's, I'm, I'm glad you highlight that. Um, to me, that's also a key takeaway. And I hear you saying that. I heard last night a friend who is out of the policy area saying that. I do believe that a lot of what has taken place, kudos to Europe for doing that. We're all surprised, but I think it's um, the key part of that has been on one side, um, demonstrations in person, and on the other side, um, this Twitter mob, in in the absence of, of a better term, with the brightest um, putting themselves together and um, trying to make, um, make proposals for what can be done more. So I guess that's an appeal to our listeners too. If you want your governments to do more, you do more social media and uh, and in person. One last question for Chris before he leaves. Yeah, Chris, I, I guess we should ask an open-ended question. You know, sort of, if you were national security advisor, <laughs> um, what? And you know, the president came to you and said, oh, "Chris, I got to do something. I want to do something. Is there anything I can do that will squeeze the Russians more?" Uh, but won't, you know, I, I at least need to buy some time so I can make military preparations. What, what do you got in your magic hat for him? Well, I, I think to be honest, the, the, the energy squeeze is the easy squeeze to do. I, I think there's also a, a lot of vulnerability on the Russian side. Their military is so heavily invested in Ukraine. Uh, my understanding is they've got fewer soldiers on their border with China at any point since the 1920s. Um, so I think there probably is a fair amount we can do to make their military planners very nervous um, by keeping them busy, just tracking our, our our ships and our planes in the Pacific and the Arctic and everywhere else to bring home the cost of, you know, if you want to put your whole army in Ukraine, that's fine, but you're going to need a bigger army uh, to secure the rest of your borders. And they're not going to be able to do that, to build that, afford that, staff that anytime soon. And I think that's going to uh, accelerate the realization among Russian leaders that they're in way over their heads. Uh, with regards to Ukraine. They underestimated the Ukrainian resistance. They've underestimated the Western response. Um, I'm afraid they're not going to come to this realization soon enough. Way, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I, I think this realization is coming at some point. Uh, and so our, our task is to help accelerate that in a, in a, <laughs> to the extent that we can, um, while also making sure the Russians don't escalate in a different sphere that causes us more problems in the interim. Yeah. So that, that's the balancing act. Right? Let, let a, we're here to help them help themselves. <laughs> that's right. That's right. I was just going to say um, that, that, that like, we really don't know when that mental shift is going to come. I mean, we, we should certainly not count on it happening anytime soon or, 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 or plan uh, like plan around it. Uh, but these information cascades go slowly until they go really fast. I mean, that's why regimes crumble in, in, in all, sorts of, all sorts of unpredictable way. And, and, and I think it's sort of morale that the Russians had gone with into this invasion and uh, and already the sort of lack of popularity of Putin at home uh, might make him more vulnerable than, 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 than it seems right now. 
but that's a hope. That's not a strategy. That's not a plan. Well, I, I think that's right. I think it's both true that Putin is substantially more vulnerable today than he was two weeks ago domestically. And it's also true that he could hold on for five years. We, we know so many examples of wars that are disastrous for both sides and yet last for a decade. Um, that I don't think we can at all assume, as you say, that uh, this is going to be a quick change in Russian political process. But before we go, and I was not expecting this, but this has been such a rewarding conversation. What should we do if that moment surfaces? Um, are we, you know, there's been way too much talk about off ramps and so on and so forth, but, um, and especially if somehow Putin is sidetracked, um, do we immediately go to the Churchillian, uh, you know, be magnanimous in peace? Uh, stance, or just this is probably the subject for another another podcast entirely. But just before we go, it's worth you know, any question that we haven't thought of ahead of time, uh, we'll be surprised by. So, anybody got any thoughts? Chris, you go first. <laughs> well, I'm happy to try. I mean, yeah, I I think if 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 in this sort of happy future where there's a big political shift in Russia and Putin retires to the Black Sea coast or, or, or however it happens. He's not um, welcome on the Black Sea coast. I'm <laughs> He's not welcome there. How about the, how about the Hague? Well, Russian, yeah, Russian leaders don't have a good track record of the happy retirements. You'd host him under those circumstances, I'm sure. <laughs> well, however he exits. Um, <laughs> I mean, my, my sense is that he will exit leaving Russian power in tatters. Um, the military broken after this war in Ukraine, even if it thinks it's won, it's lost. Um, the, the status of the security forces and the military in Russian society uh, in tatters, the economy a mess. Uh, and so I think there is actually probably plenty of scope to say, we're happy to do a deal whereby you get out of Ukraine, it's full borders, and we're happy to lift sanctions and um, welcome whoever the next Russian leader is, because they'll be so much less powerful Ukraine will be so much more consolidated, it'll have to be rebuilt, but it'll be so much more consolidated that um, I think the, the Russian challenge will have been kicked down the road several decades by that point. It's the, the disastrous moves of the past two weeks for the future of Russian power, I think are just uh, impossible to overestimate and so many errors in just a, such a short period of time. Okay, is there something that we could do to turn Russia into a positive vis-a-vis -vis China, the China challenge? Or is that just too wildly speculative? All right, let's make that another show. I withdraw the question. <laughs> let's leave this question open for the next time. All right. So, Chris, um, thank you so much for joining us. Um, from me, Yulia Zoja, and my friends. And Giselle Donnelly. Thank you for listening to The Eastern Front, a podcast dedicated to security challenges that have exploded along the line from the Baltic to the Black Sea. You can find more episodes and additional content on our website, AEI.org, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please get in touch with us on Twitter using the hashtag EasternFrontPod. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing us. Thank you, and until next time, goodbye.